Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 191, Success and Failure. The two squadrons, the first and the second, settled into their new digs in Kuming, all the easier because they seemed to have, to a degree, returned to civilization. Around the pilots was a hospital, library, various sports fields, and saving the best for last, hot showers. It was the third week of December 1941. Thus, the warm water was that much more appreciated. Gone was the humid, damp Tongu, replaced by Kuming's weather that, according to one pilot, was like early Pennsylvania. On that first night, the boys went out, as pilots are known to do, but if their thoughts were of rowdiness, those disappeared as they watched the locals deal with the results of that morning's bombing, namely moving bodies and removing debris that had once been homes or businesses. It wasn't too long before Pappy told the others in a fit of rage, I can't wait to get my gun sights on those dirty little bastards. But anger, or any emotion, will only take one so far. Chenault knew that he had to have his planes remain operational to make any contribution to the war effort. Thus, he divided up his pilots, so there would be periods of being on or off duty. And when they were off duty, they could not fly the planes to add hours to them. But because of this same schedule, Pappy missed the first enemy contact just two days later on December 20th. The on-duty pilots were playing cards when Squadron Commander Sandy Sandell ran out and said, Okay, men, this is it. Jap planes have crossed the Indochina border and are headed this way. Stay in your planes and wait for the signal to take off. Sandy was excited, but not carried away enough to not think of fuel consumption, another item that had to be husbanded. As the spotter's calls came in, reporting the ever-approaching enemy bombers, support personnel pushed flags into a large map. Soon after, a line was formed by those pins that pointed right at Kunming. Still, Sandy kept his pilots grounded, until the latest pin showed that they were only 200 miles away. Then, he ordered his men up and to patrol at 20,000 feet. That should allow them to dive down on the enemy, and hopefully, their first pass would take out several bombers. The Japanese bombers had come from Hanoi, Indochina, led by Captain Fuji Tatsujiro, of the 21st Squadron. Per standard formation, four bombers were flying in a diamond formation, with three more bombers to each side of that center formation, for a total of ten planes. As the planes came closer, the increased radio noise finally woke up Boynton and George Brigard, as it was their off day. Now awake, they ran to the airfield, but Sandy, not taking any chances, already had every serviceable plane lifted off. With nothing else to do, the two men in their pants and undershirts then ran over to the operations building to frustratingly become observers. What was frustrating Pampy was that he wanted to show the Japanese and his co-pilots what he could do, but it would not be this day. As Sandy led his total of 18 planes against the Japanese, the adrenaline caused him to forget momentarily everything that Chenault had taught them, but he collected himself before approaching the enemy. 
At that same moment, one of the Japanese bomber pilots, a Suzuki, commented over the radio that they were outnumbered, and he predicted that he would soon be dead. Finally pulling himself together, Sandy ordered his men of the 1st Squadron, a la Chenault, to dive down and make a pass at a specific bomber, shooting all the while. But as the men were so nervous, they came very close to ramming the very planes they were to be shooting at. It racked the nerves of the pilots on both sides. This diving and re-diving went on for 30 minutes. But by the time it was over, certainly with no fighter escorts for the bombers, the Japanese had lost four planes, with the rest never making a run at the American airfield. Sandy brought his men back safely to the ground. It was a good outing. Captain Tatsujiro of the 21st Squadron would never appear over Kunming again. When all of Sandy's men landed, the celebration got going, but it was nothing compared to the Chinese demonstrations. These people had been bombed, it seemed like, forever, and could only hide and hope to be alive when it was all done. Now, the hated Japanese had been driven away. Perhaps better times were to come after all. But then there was Pappy, who was happy overall. Happy for Sandy and his men, but even then Boynton desired to get his own kills to match and then surpass the other pilots. He could not get beyond his own jealousy to fully appreciate what had just happened. And just like that, China and the West had something to cheer about, something to put beside Pearl Harbor, German-controlled Europe, and soon enough, the loss of merchant ships off America's east coast. Or, though perhaps a little too on the nose, as an article in Time magazine said, the Flying Tigers, it was up to them to prove a thesis that once had seemed beyond question, that man for man, plane for plane, anything labeled USA could whip anything labeled made in Japan. Be that as it may, Pappy certainly wasn't getting a chance to prove it. For the next few weeks, the skies over Kunming stayed quiet. Not the skies over Rangoon, 800 miles or 1,287 kilometers to the southwest. There, the Japanese were sending air raids one after the other, trying to finish off the defenders' will to fight. Pappy might be forgiven for thinking that the war was purposefully avoiding him. It only made him more angry. As for the next part, one would really have to be in Pappy's corner to share his continued anger. Though bombers were not sent to Kunming for a while, reconnaissance planes were sent, or rather, they were supposed to be sent. When these smaller planes got even close to Kunming, some of the Flying Tigers went aloft, and one of those times, it was Pappy and George Brigard's turn on December 21st. Problem was, the enemy plane, way before reaching Kunming, turned around and headed for home, max speed. The two pilots landed and shared their frustration. Of course, what they had done was stop the enemy from getting updated information or pictures of Kunming, which was a much better outcome than had been happening for the last couple of months. But strictly speaking, Pappy wasn't there to save Kunming. He was there to pit himself against the best and see, really, how good he was. That, as of yet, had not happened. 
Stirring the pit of anger in Pappy's bowels even more, soon after, Tokyo Rose bragged that the Japanese would have a Christmas present for the vaunted AVG in Rangoon. But that's not how it turned out. The 3rd Squadron, based there, intercepted a large enemy formation of bombers, this time protected by fighters. But after all was said and done, the Japanese turned around without launching a bombing attack and lost 10 aircraft for their pains. Again back home, the shouts of congratulations and pride could be heard across the country. But for Pappy, he knew the accolades were for the 3rd Squadron specifically not the AVG in general, i.e. him. And then, when Chenault pulled out the 3rd Squadron on December 30th from Rangoon to give it a break, he put in not the 1st Squadron that Pappy belonged to, but the 2nd Squadron. Chenault was being wise, letting more men get experience. Why he chose the 2nd Squadron instead of the 1st, well, it was his choice to make. But Pappy took it personally. Most people, like Pappy, see events with themselves in the center, and that's common enough, but most of us do not throw in vast amounts of alcohol and rage. But the tension had already risen to a dangerous point by then. Just days earlier, December 20th, the men of the 1st Squadron had talked and decided that Sandy Sandell, their squadron commander, was the reason why they were not getting the plum assignment of being sent to Rangoon. It was his edgy personality that Chenault probably did not like, and thus they were all being punished. This went on for a few more days until Boynton and Bond went to talk to Sandy. Not liking the challenge to his authority, he yelled right back, but then they all calmed down and talked over the situation. This changed nothing, but some air had been cleared. So on December 30th, when the 2nd Squadron had taken off for Rangoon, the pilots of 1st Squadron said they wanted a new leader, either Boynton for his experience or Bond, although he had less experience. The only thing that got the 1st Squadron through the rest of the year, mostly the pilots, was that this war seemed like it would go on for a long time. Surely 1942 would see some action. And when one of the pilots commented that the Japanese radio called the Americans savages, George Brigard, Pappy's bunkmate, said, they haven't seen anything yet. For Chenault, as their leader, he was focused on the larger war effort, as is proper. So he cared little for the pilots' frustration. In fact, in mid-January, he told the AVG pilots that if anyone wanted to quit, they should go right ahead but they would have to find their own way home, and Chenault would see to it that they were dishonorably discharged. Pappy was angry, but he was level-headed enough to remember why he was here. Days later, it seemed as if Pappy was finally to get his chance. Eight pilots from Kunming were sent to Rangoon, as the air battles there were increasing in intensity, and Pappy was one of them. When they arrived, they saw the airfield full of bomb craters, and the buildings were ventilated with machine gun holes, which sobered up some of the new arrivals. Death was a daily occurrence here. But then Chenault ordered two of the pilots back to Kung Ming. The pilots drew straws, 
and Boyington and John Croft found themselves with the shorter reeds. They flew back to Kunming. Pappy couldn't decide if he was more miserable or angry, so opted for both. His comrades were grabbing up the glory while he sat around and drank and played cards. Each day seemed to go on forever. And yet, as the war was going badly for the British, it improved for Pappy. Before January 1942 was over, it was clear that the British-led forces would have to leave Thailand. Thus, it was decided to retreat to Burma. But, hoping to cut off those retreating forces, the Japanese began a five-day air raid against Rangoon. Hoping to lessen the threat to the vital port city, Chenault sent Pappy back. He would finally get his chance. His first night back, January 25th, he went to a bar. Right away he noticed that the Americans were on one side of the room, the British on the other. Tension filled the air. The British did not want to admit that they were losing and did not want the help of these American cowboys. The Americans quickly grew tired of the cool snobbery of their counterparts. Fortunately, alcohol calmed everyone's nerves, and the night passed with a rapprochement. The next day, January 26th, Pappy was in the air, heading toward enemy planes, being placed right behind the lead P-40. Pappy assumed their leader was experienced, but when the pilot did not keep gaining altitude, the American grew confused and then concerned as the two groups of adversaries closed in on each other. It seemed that Chenault's commandments had, indeed, made their way into his head. The eight P-40 fighters were about to mix with 23 Nakajima Ki-27 Nate fighters. Worse, the enemy was about 2,000 feet higher than the defenders. Sure enough, the Japanese planes started diving down at the P-40s. Soon, two were on Pappy's tail. Boeington tried to shake the two stalkers, but no matter what he tried, they stayed close, all the while sending tracers just past his plane. Then he tried various tricks to get in behind his pursuers, but again, the situation did not change. Then a third enemy plane joined in on the hunt. Boeington found that any time he tried to go after another plane, he opened himself up to those behind him, so he was forced to focus on keeping those pilots from getting a clear shot. As his desire to score a kill obsessed him, Pappy soon found another enemy plane to go after. But as soon as it was obvious who his target was, that pilot performed a perfect split S and got away, as Pappy could not give chase considering the planes behind him. Thinking through his playbook of options, Pappy next pulled out his best trick. As he had learned from wrestling, he tightened his neck muscles in order to constrict the flow of blood. This done, he took the plane into tighter and tighter turns. But each time he straightened out, his pursuers were still behind him. As their planes had a better turn rate, those pilots did not have to pull such tricks to relieve their body of G-forces. Clearly, nothing he had would shake these planes. Indeed, within the last few minutes, Pappy's plane had taken a few bullet holes, along with his upper arm. Despite all his anger and desire to engage the enemy, as things stood, much more of this 
and his chances would truly never come. So, swallowing his pride, the pain in his arm helped, he dove for the deck and turned to go home. When he was clearly away from the dogfight, the enemy let him go. Upon landing, Pappy found out a few things, and his anger rose. First, for all his attempts to shake the enemy, he had stayed longer in the fight than all the other defenders. Next, pilot Koki Hoffman did not make it back. But it was the last item that caused Boyington to grimace. Turns out that their attack leader, Albert Red Prost, had just arrived at Mingaladon, and it was his first flight in this theater. How in the hell was he made the group leader, Pappy wondered. As he had been the last one back, when Pappy's plane was spotted coming in, his fellow pilots cheered and greeted him. Of course, that hardly stemmed the anger he felt at himself. And in that state, Pappy did not have the patience or clear head to write up his combat report. He cut others some slack, but never himself. Three days later, January 29th, the Japanese were back, 20 fighters, hoping or expecting a repeat performance. In response, Boynton and nine other P-40s rose up to challenge them. This time, the Americans got higher, and the results spoke for themselves. After a 30-minute dogfight with more coordination and pairing up, per Chenault, the enemy left with 16 fewer planes. During the melee, Charlie Bond could be heard over the radio shouting, This is for Koki, you son of a bitch! When they landed, Boynton claimed two kills, but no one could corroborate it, so this did not go into the books. Pappy stuck to his guns, so to speak, but the kills remained unofficial. As the Allies lost outpost after outpost in the Pacific in late 41 and early 42, the newspapers back home, indeed Churchill himself in the House of Commons, praised the AVG pilots for their willingness and, more importantly, their ability to stand up to the Japanese, which was like a knife twisting in Pappy's side. With each article or radio address, he knew that his contribution had been very little, and the other pilots knew it as well. But, as the pilots kept telling each other, some excitedly, some not, this war was far from over. On February 3rd, the 2nd Squadron was sent back to Kunming. The Japanese were getting closer in Burma and China, so Chenault wanted to spread out his defenses. This left the Adam and Eve's 1st Squadron, Pappies, in Rangoon. And as the Japanese were only 200 miles away and closing in, they would send in more air attacks. And sure enough, on February 6th, 35 enemy planes approached Rangoon. But the Americans had plenty of warning. Boeington and the others went up. Sticking with Chenault's playbook, now considered a Bible by the pilots, the Americans flew higher and dove down. Boeington got in behind a fighter and gave it a short burst. The target quickly went out of control and started spinning, for the last time, to the earth. This freed him up to get behind another plane. Diving down, he dropped in, aimed, and fired. Soon, another plane was doomed. By the time the Japanese left, the Adam and Eves had downed seven enemy planes, with another five probable kills. 
if they made it home. This time, when they landed, Pappy stayed with the group to celebrate, as he truly belonged among them. The demons in his head were quiet for a while. As much as the press back home praised the AVG, this pitch rose to a whole new level. Of course, Tokyo Rose increased her vitriol, calling the Americans' way of fighting cowardly hit-and-run tactics. Some of the British pilots may have agreed with this assessment a few months ago, but the results could not be ignored. Boeington had few successes in life thus far, and certainly not a string of them, so that this one should come to a halt is no surprise. Of course, it did surprise Boeington, and he only had one way of reacting, anger. The next day after his two kills, Sandy Sandell died in a crash, testing a plane. Pappy, despite their clashes, missed the man, but at the same time, he only assumed that he would become the new squadron commander of the Adam and Eves. But no, Chenault tapped Bob Neal as the new man. To be sure, Neal felt bad for Pappy. He even hesitated in taking the job. But all of these men had mountain-sized egos. And besides, there was a bump in pay. Boeington would be second in command. But then Neal, when discussing tactics, would talk to Charles Bond, not Boeington, which angered Pappy anew. Flying experience encourages one thing, but more than a few diaries at this point of the pilots repeated a certain phrase when it came to the older Pappy. In the air, he was truly a tiger, but on the ground, he didn't care about anything, and he didn't hide it. Pappy was regularly shooting himself in the foot, but would never change his ways or accept responsibility for his devil-may-care attitude. It kept him on the outer rings of the tigers, and he felt it keenly. Boeington was a tiger, to be sure, and he was needed in this war, but on the ground, he should have been a caged tiger. And his behavior did not change. When he showed up late one day to an alert on February 15th, he and Neil almost got into a fist fight. One does not hit the squadron commander. But on February 28th, Pappy outdid himself. And as it was on the ground, it was not in a good way. On that day, Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Cheng visited Kunming to praise the AVG. Chenault told everyone to stay sober during their visit, which Pappy and fellow pilot Percy Bartlett did not do, sitting at a local bar, shit-faced. When the Changs and Chenault turned up there, the two pilots could hardly stand. Chenault did not say anything at the moment, but clearly, Pappy's days with the AVG were coming to a close.